Amen. Well, good morning. I just want to point out, you guys say a much louder good morning to me than you do a Maori. Just throwing that out there. I think I'm your favorite. I don't know. Hey, uh, before we get into that, uh, you guys can, if you would, you can turn to Revelation 13. Before we get there, I uh, wanted to uh, just kind of put something before you guys. Uh, I was talking about this last week or so. Um, we've been having some uh, tech crashing, right? So we've had uh, problems with our live stream, problems with the screens here, this consistent crashing, and, and everybody kind of tracked it down to what it was uh, by the end of last week. And um, yeah, yay. And so uh, we came down to a new, yeah, I will, thanks. Uh, and we came down to a need for a new computer and not something we budgeted for. And, and so just want to put that out there. I'm going to try and raise up like $1,500 to get a new computer for the tech booth. And so my elders always encourage me, hey, put that out to everybody. Uh, we get some discounts like through the education stuff, through our connection to Valley, as we were just praying for that, made me think of it. And so if you want to donate, if you want to contribute to that, please either let me or, or Johnny Evenhouse, one of us, know. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe that'll take care of that and we won't have to figure it out inside of a budget that was already planned for, if you will. All right? Kids, if you want to go uh, to your classroom, you can. We would encourage you, stay with your families, worship with us, but you're more than welcome to go. I think Maureen, maybe, is, is you're gonna, they can follow you. We're going to put our kids in your hands, Maureen. That scares me to no end. I'm right, just telling you, that woman is crazy. All right. She's just crazy enough to probably lead those kids, you know. All right. Uh, if you would start my timer, please. Let's put up these two verses, uh, this, these two verses out of Revelation. This was back in our second message, I think, in Revelation, um, speaking to the church in Smyrna. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, let's just leave that verse up there for a minute. And I want to I look at this. I was, I was preparing for today. Uh, I was just thinking through kind of the, the, the larger narrative of Revelation. And this passage came up. And you notice there, there are two references to the devil, right? So, or Satan, the devil, right? One is the synagogue of Satan. And so let's call that false religion, right? So false religion that persecutes Christianity. And then there's a second reference, and it says that, some, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Now, what brought this to my attention is I was teaching, uh, we're wrapping up New Testament survey in school, and I was teaching the sophomores, we're in the book of Revelation. So we got to the churches, and I asked, okay, so now who has the authority to put someone in jail? And you could see they're, they're like, the devil? I'm like, no, no, like on earth. Like who has the authority on earth? They're like, okay, the police. And I said, who leads the police? Okay, the government. Yes. There are these two things, these two references to the devil here, to Satan, to evil, to our enemy. One is false religion and one is government persecution. Right, you see that? Right? The, the ability, and uh, some authors reading not too long ago while we were studying through Revelation, said that, that Satan or evil or demons use human means to persecute us. Right? And so false religion or government institutions that do that. And, and I was just thinking about that, and, and this verse, I was reading through this, and there's these two ways. And now how that relates to today 
is today in Revelation 13, one of the more famous passages in Revelation, we encounter the two beasts, right? Now, if you're an Iron Maiden fan, the rest of you are too young. All right, so everybody thinks there's one beast. There's actually two. And we're going to see the parallel today to uh, oppressive government and false religion. So I'll put a main idea on the screen for you. The beasts of Revelation 13, the two beasts are two ways Satan persecutes the church through totalitarian government and false religion. They reveal ways that we lose focus on worshiping the one true God. Now, I've also been doing some of the things, had the privilege of speaking at a men's retreat uh, the last two days, Friday and Saturday, at a Friday night message and a Saturday morning message uh, for 150, 200 men. Really fun. Got to take Alex and, and Dylan uh, down there and uh, just enjoy the time with these men. And one of the messages we did was out of Daniel, and I was just thinking through the stories in Daniel. And it's really relevant to today. I was already had some of the stuff in Daniel in today's message. And each week we've been talking about how the images in Revelation primarily all come out of the Old Testament. In the opening lines, opening three verses of Revelation, it tells us the things that we need to understand this book. That the Word of God, and in this case would be the Old Testament, the testimony of Jesus, in other words, the teachings of Jesus, right? That would be, at minimum, the gospel, if not all the New Testament, right? Because the apostles carried on his teaching. And the third thing is his visions. With those three things, if you're armed with those three things, you're set for revelation. And so each week we've been, not every week, but on most weeks, we've been taking kind of the Old Testament narrative that's brought into the chapter. Last week we looked a lot at Genesis. This week we're going to look more at Daniel. So Revelation 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, those are crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, on its head, excuse me. So again, the Old Testament is critical to understanding Revelation, right? The imagery there, it's expected that we know that, and I think that's probably why there's so many struggles with Revelation today, is that so much of modern American Christianity is unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Uh, I hear this all the time, we'll teach through an Old Testament book or whatever, and people are like, yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. Well, it's necessary to understand, right? If the Old Testament is kind of the foretelling of what will take place, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of that, you're missing pieces if you don't have both. Right? Does that make sense? And so the imagery here is saturated in Old Testament imagery. So Daniel has this vision. In fact, it happens a couple places but I wanted to pick the one that had such similar language that you could see it. So Daniel chapter 7, we'll put it up. And it says, as for the fourth beast, now just for the record, there's been three prior beasts, right? You can imagine that. Okay, now as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, and it shall devour the whole earth. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High." The language here, and I edited down for length, but the language here matches. It even talks about the horns and the crowns, and it, and it goes through this whole thing. And what God is telling Daniel, it's kind of a similar message what he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel reveals to him in chapter 2, right, that there are these successive kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of a golden head, and then a, a different body, and a different torso, and then legs and feet, different, these different metals and stones, and 
And no one can tell him what the dream is. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, in order to, so I know you're telling me the truth. You've got to tell me the dream I had and tell me the interpretation. And everybody's like, no one can do that, right? Like, who can tell you the dream you had? But tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. He's like, nope, that's cheating. But if you don't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. That's what he says. He gets all mob boss, like, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your family, I'm going to burn your house to the ground. It's crazy. So Daniel, obviously, you know the story, tells him the meaning of the dream. He says, you're the head, and, and then the next one is the next kingdom, the next is the next kingdom, right? And it ends in Rome. And these four beasts that appear later to Daniel are these kingdoms, these successive kingdoms that end in Rome. And it proclaims, that it kind of just reminds us that, you know, kings and kingdoms come, but what happens is Daniel ends up preaching Jesus. Now, he won't use the name Jesus, but he talks about an eternal king and an eternal kingdom that is not rooted in any of the nations of the earth. We know what that is. And it comes during Rome. And so it happens. Jesus comes during the reign of the Roman Empire. And so this is all just kind of sitting in this Daniel imagery, the beasts, the kingdoms, right? This proclaiming Rome, and, and now they're in the middle of it. And so John is writing this. Let's start back in the beginning, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears in its mouth, and it was like a lion's mouth. And listen, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. Right? So the dragon from last chapter, right, the dragon that Revelation tells us is the serpent, Satan from Genesis, from the garden, right? So we know who that is. So the dragon, Satan, is going to give authority to this beast, right? This beast that is rising out of the sea. Now, in Hebrew literature, the, the sea is always representative of chaos, right? You think of Jesus calming the storm at sea, or you think of Jonah getting thrown into the storm at sea. There's always this imagery of chaos going on around the sea, and so the sea is this chaotic world, and out of this chaotic world where kingdoms keep flipping and empires keep crashing each other and taking over, from this comes a greater beast talking about Rome. You know, I've said that we have dangers if we put Revelation as this futuristic book, right? If we see it as things that will happen, we have the danger of missing the ability to obey it like it says in the beginning, right? That you should hear these words and obey them, Right? Well, we can't obey something that hasn't happened yet. There's an equal danger to looking backwards and saying this already happened, meaning like it's, it's completed or done. Right? We have to understand Rome in its context, but not as a fulfillment complete, completed, although it is a, a fulfillment. But then we have to understand, okay, what does that mean for government today? Right? You've got to understand, okay, what did they do? What are they talking about? And then how does it relate to us? Right? And I was thinking through this, and this church is uh, such a unique church. Um, you've heard pastors get up here, and I remember Mike Larson, when he was here last, he stopped in the middle of saying something. He's like, this is such a diverse church, right? And he looks around, it's just, it is an eclectic blend of people. Lots of folks that were, and I mean a good amount of folks that were not born here and immigrated here at some point, some as little kids and some as adults, whatever, Right, people that were born here of all kind of walks of life. And so as we look at today's message, there's 
an interesting thing for me, like, okay, it's not a ubiquitous or a, a, a kind of everybody the same in the room. Like, we've all got to approach this with a variety of lenses. And so the goal really is just to teach through these things and hopefully clarify them enough to where you find yourself in the story somehow, right? Because we have such different backgrounds of getting here. So the dragon, Satan, is going to give power to the beast rising up out of the chaos, and it's speaking to, and again, we know this already because of Daniel. Daniel's fulfilled and knows it's Rome, right? But what you've got to see is that the dragon from last week has seven heads, ten horns, and his heads have seven diadems. And the beast today, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems, right? We see this representation of false authority or true, real authority, but that persecutes the church, right? That is anti-Jesus. And, and I, I hesitate to use the word anti-Christ because we don't want to, again, most people that say that put that in the future, and I would say if you were living back here under Nero and Domitian, you would know there was an antichrist actively persecuting the church, right? And there have been many. Same author, John, uses the word in the plural in his letters, the antichrists, plural. And so again, yes, it may be true in John's day for him. Then we have to figure out, okay, how is it true for us today? So the Roman government, empowered by Satan, begins to persecute the church. And so it does so in a variety of ways. We'll get to some of them. But we think back to those opening verses in Smyrna, right? Through kind of a totalitarian regime and through false worship. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. There's a variety of opinions on what this means. Some say Nero because he had this uh, this kind of encounter that may have killed him. I, I think to historically tie this to one person as an end-all, be-all thing is hard to do. Uh, Rome, on the other hand, about lost control of everything and then regained power. So some think it's the nation, the empire of Rome. Some people think possibly Nero. Not too worried about it. The message remains the same, right? There's, there's this kingdom, this power that is persecuting Christianity, Right? And, and when I hear this, they thought it was a mortal wound, but it came back to life. And again, we have these parodies of Jesus. We have these multiple heads with multiple crowns and these blasphemous names, this kind of parody of Christ. We see the same thing in kind of a parody of the resurrection, right? We see this, this kind of this mockery or parody of. So whether it's a nation or a person, a historic figure, or it's going to happen again and again, or whatever it may be. What we see is the mocking of Jesus, right? And when we think of Jesus, we, we should not just think of Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as King, right? As King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of the eternal kingdom that Daniel preaches about, one that can never be destroyed, one that's not tied to nationality or, or you know, socioeconomic status, but the King of kings. And so we see this mocking of Jesus, in Revelation 1, 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Right? The one who resurrected from the grave is the only one who can forgive our sins. That our sins that separate us from God are covered by the blood of Christ. 
right? That the gospel is that message of love from our creator to us, people who outright reject God. And when I say reject God, I mean daily kind of choosing our own way. And that God and his love continues to pursue us and love us and rescue us and redeem us. And he's done so in Christ, right? That the gospel isn't this thing, and we say this all the time, that introduces us to Jesus or introduces us to God or introduces us to faith. And then we move on to something else. It's not that. The, the gospel is the power in which we stand every day. It's the power in which we have hope that when we stand before a holy, eternal God, that we will stand there in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is everything. We never leave it. And so this death and resurrection motif to the gospel reminds us that we die to ourselves here and that we live for Christ forever. But there goes the struggle. This human life has so many things that draw us off track, right? And I think that's where we're going to find ourselves today is less overt worship and more subtle worship. And so we'll get there, right? Verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, for they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it. So I want you to hear this. To worship the beast is ultimately to worship the dragon. You with me? So to worship Satan. Right, we're clear? Okay. So to worship government is to worship Satan. You with me? Woo! We're going to offend some people today. So, all right. So to worship any government is to worship Satan. We with that? We got quieter. There was a few more yeses when we were back in Rome. All right. Wait a minute. You're treading on America. Hold it. I mean, okay. I hear you. Listen, I was that kid at 17 who joined the army. I couldn't wait. The army couldn't save me. That was the problem. That's what we found out. I was looking for a functional savior. And that didn't work, by the way, as you know the rest of the story, right? Needed Jesus. We can't trade a nation for a savior, and they're not the same thing. When we trade worship of the true, eternal savior for anything else, we are worshiping Satan. You with me? So Islam, satanic. With me? When we miss the mark, we're into evil. We're not just good intentions. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. You worship the beast, you're worshiping the dragon, Satan, because they think this will never fail, right? And, and there are so many of us that we just wonder how could this nation ever fail? Rome was powerful. Rome was an empire. Rome's a city with a Vatican now, right? Cool place to visit, not an empire. Not the Vatican, Rome. Anyhow, okay. So we wonder how can the most powerful nation on the planet ever not be, right? And that's, of course, the narrative we're hearing in the news and politics, right? Both sides trying to scare you into the idea that the other one's going to kill this thing, right? I say this thing's going to get killed one way or the other, right? This can't last. It is not the eternal kingdom. So they worshiped the dragon for he'd given his authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The Roman Empire felt indestructible. Can you see a little bit of how that might apply to us today? 
right? How we live in the greatest nation on the planet, how that might be a strong parallel for some of us. We were just talking a few minutes ago to a friend here, and, and you know, it could happen, like, China could invade, right? We, we could all be learning Mandarin next week. I mean, I, I don't know, right? Like, it could happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm sure lots of people didn't think things were going to happen that did, right? You with me? Like, it could happen. And all of a sudden, you're on the other end of the scale, because in China right now, the Christian church is persecuted and underground. They don't get little signs out front saying, join us at 10 a.m., right? Because they join us at 10 a.m., the CCP would, right? So we don't always have that. And so we've got to understand these things could flip just because we're good today doesn't mean we're good forever, right? Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It said over and over again, these references to 42 months keep referring to the time between the ascension and the return, right? Lots of people put that in different categories. Here's how I'm using it. The time of Jesus' ascension to his final return, that time, right? And so it says he's allowed to utter these blasphemous things. Now remember, these were the very things that were happening in Rome, right? So they can't be a future thing, but then again, they can't be completely fulfilled or we couldn't do anything with it. It would be a history book. It's got to be relevant, right? And so in Rome, what happened was they began to proclaim their Caesars divine, using terms like Savior, Son of God, Lord. And they would say things that speak against the truth of God. We have that in our culture today, right? That people by birth are somehow... Um, determined to be victims just by their birth themselves, right? Or that everybody else by birth is determined to victimize them, or, or that, that birth or gender or sexuality or other things, that, it, that it's not created, that it's, that it's fluid, it's choosable, whatever, right? You pick your thing, or that, or that the world spontaneously came to be from nothing, became something that evolved into this. I, I laugh too. That's, that takes a lot more faith than there's a creator, Right? Somebody made the podium. Somebody made my shirt. I, somebody made the world. Right? It, it just follows. Those are things that are, even though they're not aimed at God per se, maybe evolution is, but the others are subtly aimed at what God has taught us. So they undermine God. They are blasphemous in that way. And that's what he's saying, that they utter blasphemy for a time, for a season. But I want you to notice this, though. It, the beast was allowed to exercise authority. See, God allows this season that we're in. It's for you. No, so uh, the God that allows this temporary moment, right, this fleeting season of time for a purpose. Now, when you get to, well, what is that purpose? I, listen, I don't know necessarily, Right? Historically, what we see is the sufferings that the church endures tends to strengthen the church, right? The, the church, it's, listen, you get a lot more committed believers if they're committing to something they know could, they could die for, right? When it's just something to do on Sundays when football's not on, you get a different level of commitment, right? And so, again, so God allows this, and, and maybe it's a season of purging out those who are not in Christ, and maybe it's a, a clarifying of what does it mean to follow Jesus. I, I can't speak to that. I can just say it's true. 
Verse 6, it, the beast, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who are in heaven. So opposition to God looks like this. It says it opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. We just talked about that. Things that are anti-God, things that undermine the truth that God has given us, that's the first part. And then it says there's an opposition to the church. It blasphemies those who, those people who dwell in heaven. Now, there's this contrast, and we talked about it a few times. We're going to see it again today, this verse, and I think the next verse. There are those who dwell in heaven and those who dwell on the earth, right? There are those two things. And when it talks about those who dwell on the earth, it talks about judgment and separation. It's not about the church on earth, right? It's about people who are just here. When it talks about us, it talks about us who dwell in the church, who dwell in, and I'll say it an easier way, those of us that are a part of the kingdom versus the world. You with me? And that's how he separates them out. Now, how can you persecute the dead who have gone on to be with Jesus? You can't. He's going to oppose those who are in the kingdom, but here on earth, those who dwell in heaven. It's a reminder of where our eyes and our lives should be fixed. Right? I said we're too comfortable here as if we're citizens here. When we are called to be citizens here and aliens and strangers here, yet we place all our focus here and we miss the point here. You with me? Like that, that's a thing for us. And so this, this language that Revelation uses is for this purpose to keep our heads in the game here so that while we live here with a purpose, we are distinct and separate from those who only live here. And I, this is, I'm going to say this, and this is, this is super cutting to me and you, I think. But if we were to just take a snapshot right now, and Jesus was to grade us on how we live, like, are we living in the world or are we living in the kingdom? Like, I'm not, I don't even know. I'm not sure I want to get graded on that today. You know, I need a few more study halls and some, some extra, you know, I need to get my head out of the game. Right? I, I got I to gotta change. Like, I know and get caught in this world. It's everything that we see and feel and experience. But man, and I'm, a, and I'm a guy pursuing an advanced degree, but that advanced degree is not going to get me into heaven any more than I was getting into heaven before I had a high school diploma. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just, it's not. And, and we strive for money. We strive for prestige. We strive for this or that or comfort or whatever. And all of it's going away. But we live like it's forever. We give ourselves to it like it's forever. So those who dwell in heaven, back to that, I want to put this note on the screen. Revelation speaks here of those who are in Christ, but still alive on earth, opposite of the earth dwellers, reminding us that this is not our home and to not get so attached to this life. Now, I say that almost metaphorically. Don't get attached to this life. Well, truly, He's saying, don't get attached to breathing, because that could end. You could die for your faith. But metaphorically, don't get so invested here that you lose sight of our purpose eternally. Verse 7, also it was allowed, right? Also the beast was allowed. Notice God allows again, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Right? As the beast wars against the church, we remember kind of that story from Daniel, right? There are these, these snapshots of Daniel's life. And, and at one point, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. And he's thrown into the lion's den because he refuses to give up prayer, right? That's his line. 
They say, you're no longer allowed to pray to any other God on this day. And, and Daniel's like, yeah, I pray every day. I mean, I can't stop that. So he prays, and he's, he is going to be executed. And, and God obviously carries him through that, right? Saves him through it. Again, it's not that he's, he is uh, taken away from it. He's saved through it. And that's the image here for the church. We're not removed from it, but we're taken through. We're sustained through it. That we'll endure hardships. Some might die. But that God will keep us no matter what and to keep us, to remind us not to be so focused on what may happen or may not happen here. Verse 8, here we go. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the lamb who was slain. So again, earth dwellers. A reminder of those people here on earth that do not worship Jesus, who are not in Christ. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. This should remind you of Revelation 2 and 3, the introductions to the churches. This is Jesus circling back to the same language to the churches, like, don't forget where we were, just because I've said a bunch of stuff, same calling, right? Listen, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. The church exploded across the first and second and even third century. Right? The gospel went out into nation after nation after nation on multiple continents. The beginning of the slow was when Rome Christianized, when they made it the national religion. But it grew under persecution. Once it became the, oh, everybody's going to do this, it lost its strength. There's something to be said that when you endure a little, it, it sharpens or hones or, or focuses your faith. But when we have it too easy, and we kind of slack off, same thing is true in sports or academics. Like if you're doing really well, you don't study as hard, right? If you're doing really well, you don't practice as hard. Same idea. When it's easy, sometimes we lose sight. Verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast, so beast number two, rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, again, not everybody thinks of there being two beasts. We hear of the beast, or the Antichrist, or the this, right? Well, there's a second beast, right? And, and here's this description. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And, and here's what it is, very simply, is false religion or false worship, right? Just like we saw in Smyrna, right? The synagogue of Satan, we see here this looks like a lamb, looks like Jesus, kind of, but talks like Satan. That's the image that we're given, right? And this presentation of false religion. So beast number two is also going to be called the false prophet in Revelation 16, 19, and 20, right? Same thing, the false prophet or the false religion or beast number two. And so I want you to, I want you to see this picture, right? You have the dragon, you have beast number one, which is the government that, in, in their case, Rome, any totalitarian government that persecutes Christianity, any kind of government like that. And the third thing is false religion. You can see what theologians have called the unholy trinity, right? You can see the dragon and the two beasts, or the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And it gives us this presentation again. There's a parody or mocking of the true God, right? And we see that presented to us in the dragon, the beast, and the, the second beast, the false prophet. So verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast. So 
This false religion exercises its authority with the authority given to it by the first speech, which is government. Do you see what it's saying? Right? So Satan empowers the government, and the government empowers this religion, this false religion. So in Rome in this moment, they were beginning to worship Caesar. They were also the other people persecuting Christianity. As you go back through chapter 2 and chapter 3, those introductions to the seven churches, there are two main persecutors of Christianity. One is the Roman cult worship or imperial worship, the worshipers of uh, the Caesar at the time, whether that be Nero or Domitian or whoever, right? The other one is Judaism. See, Judaism, Judaism had a special dispensation to worship their way. And, and so listen to this, the, the, the conflict was, if you live in Rome and you worship Artemis of, of the Ephesians and you worship Caesar and you, you worship Mars and you, you do all these different things, I mean, adding a little pinch of incense to Caesar, who cares? Because you worship this, you know, pantheon of polytheism, this, these many idols. So adding a little thing to another one is not a big deal. But when you worship one God as only true, like Christianity does, you can't do that. Well, Judaism is also monotheistic. But they were given the ability, a special dispensation, they were given the exception clause. They were given the ability to exist without persecution by the Roman government. And so they got to do it instead of remembering that Christianity had its roots in Judaism. Instead of that and protecting them, they persecuted them. So you see these two false religions persecuting Christianity. And both of them given government authority. Right? There are lots of faith systems here today that have full support by the government. Right? That have the, hey, we don't disagree with anything. But you stand up and make a statement about when life begins or, you know, the definition that God created. of I mean, You stand up for something like that, and then all of a sudden, there's a lot of pushback, right? It's probably easy to be a Buddhist in a high school. I'm not sure it's easy to be a Christian in a high school. And so that's what we see. These, these authorities are given, and the outcome is persecution of the church. So verse 12, it exercises all authority of the first beast, in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. And so again, that reference to the mortal wound, you can take that however you like to take that and put that in there. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage either way. But the false religion drives us back to the worship of government, right? Which worship of government is worship of? All right. True then, true now, Right? It drives us back to the same thing. In Daniel 3, there was this passage. It says this. We'll put it on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, It is true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into burning, fiery furnace. This is the famous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, the VeggieTale version, Rakshak and Benny, Right? If you weren't there, you should see it. All right. See, Daniel is told he can't pray. He prays in a sense of the lion's den. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, well, all you got to do is bow down. To, you can worship your own God. That's fine. They don't care. But you got to worship Nebuchadnezzar too. They're like, yeah, that's a deal breaker for us, right? Because he's a dude, 
and Jesus is God, right? Like, no, we don't worship men. We worship Jesus, right? The triune, eternal creator, God. See, when you push back, it's not what else you do, it's what you won't do in this case, right? And so they won't worship something false. In Daniel's case, he must worship something true. In these two cases, we see those who are faithful persecuted, right? It should remind us, there's, there's parallels for us today. So again, it exercises all authority of the first beast and its presence makes the earth of the inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You can play that out in American politics, whether it's climate or uh, gender and sexuality or uh, you name it, like you play it out. Justice, it played out. It, as long as you're on board here, you're good. But you stray outside of this, and stuff's going to hit the fan for sure, right? And again, as long as you play ball, but that's the problem with Christianity, is we've been given a truth we adhere to, and, and, and we can't make exceptions to that truth, right? And we can't say, okay, well, you know, I, I can just, I can ignore this part to make things easier, so that I won't be persecuted, so it won't be held against me, so I won't be called names, so I won't be canceled, so I won't be this, so I won't be that. And again, right now in our culture, like the worst thing is being canceled or called this or called that, like that's pretty much the penalty we pay. That's it. Now, granted, if you're in high school and, and that can be bad. But as an adult, man, I mean, like, we got to figure that the cost right now is pretty low. What if the cost was more? Where would we land in that, right? So verse 13, it, meaning the false prophet of the second beast, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, right? So it doesn't have to be literal fire. Like, nothing yet has been literal. Like, the Roman government didn't, wasn't a beast that came out of the ocean, right? It's a metaphor. It's an image, right? And so it doesn't have to be literal. The meaning is literal. The image is giving us the teaching is literal, but it doesn't have to be actual fire from heaven, right? Could be anything, right? That the government has this this amazing display of power. I was trying to think of a different parallel, and, and I just, over the last three years, I think we're finally starting to consider ourselves post-COVID, I think, right? I mean, that feels like we're getting to that place, like hospitals and doctor's offices aren't enforcing masks anymore, and I can't think they were kind of the last holdout for that, and no judgment, just saying it's true, right? So three years later, we're getting to this other place. Now look back over the last three years. And how much did we rely on government to provide a solution for COVID? That puts a lot of authority in a human institution that's just made up of people like you and me, right? Whether that be guidelines or vaccines or cures or medicines or therapeutics, whatever it might be, how much did we want someone, someone human, to provide a solution? Like fire from heaven. I mean, like, you need to come and, and solve this problem for us. Versus somehow, no, and, and again, no, really, no judgment on where you landed or how you were in the midst of COVID. It was the craziest thing, right? I mean, we, we began in a place where we knew nothing. Lots of people were dying, and then it got politicized. It got used on both sides, using against each other, and it just became a mess. But in that... Where did we place our trust? And when we find ourselves slipping to medicine or government or freedom or this 
we're trusting in human solutions, all of them, versus trusting in God. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, note allowed to work, right, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Right? So again, as the authority is allowed to take place, as God grants the ability for those who oppose the church to take place, people begin to worship those institutions. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. I can't read this verse. I read this over and over and over again. I can't read this verse and think of like that unholy trinity or the kind of the parodies mocking of Jesus without kind of seeing this verse. And we'll put it up. It's in Genesis. There's two verses, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. Then chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I just see this giving life to this image, right, that is made in their image. I just, again, there's this mockery of truth coming from Satan and misleading people. And I think that's what's important for the passage, that we don't have to identify, okay, who's the beast or who is going to be the beast or was the beast or whatever, but understanding these institutions, when treated wrongly, are actually false worship in either case, in false worship or government, right? That we can slip into both categories. And I, I find here, it's easy to slip into both categories. We're such a politicized culture, and Christianity has just such a spectrum of problems. From the uber-liberal church where you can barely find Jesus in the midst of it, to the, you know, to the prosperity doctrine, you know, the Joel Osteen's on over here, God wants you to be healthy and rich, and I mean, that's easy to fill a stadium for sure. You're going to suffer. That's not so easy, right? But it's so easy to get pulled because there's just not a consistent message from the church. Verse 16, it also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So he says that there is this, this oppression, this economic oppression. And so to die for your faith is this one-time thing, right? If someone holds a gun to your head and says, renounce Jesus right now, I'm going to kill you. I think that's probably easier to make that one stand. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. But I think that's easier than to live under economic oppression. You can't buy food. You can't have a job. You can't feed your family. Right as we looked at these seven churches, some of them addressed the fact that they belong to guilds, right? Modern-day unions, right? They belong to these trade unions, and that they were removed from them if they wouldn't worship Caesar, right? Like, if you lost your job today because you're a Christian— and you lost your ability to buy food for your family right now because of your faith, and you had no death in sight, that seems to be harder. Then to make that one time, you know, renounce Jesus or die, you got to get one answer right. Right? you got to get it one, one time, one answer, and that's it. That seems easier. No, uh, granted, I'm not saying it's easy. 
But that's what's taking place. Because of their faith, they're being marginalized. And this took place in Rome. Again, this happened. This happened to the readers. This happened to the hearers. And it's happened throughout time. We miss the point because just because it isn't happening here doesn't mean it isn't happening in the world today. That there are people that are dying for their faith today. And yeah, maybe you can get canceled here. Maybe that's about as close as you can get. But people are dying for their faith and being excluded from culture, work, feeding uh, food, and feeding their families. And that happens today. And we miss that. And, we, and we, take our, we take our circumstances here in America and we let that define the entire book of Revelation for us. When if we were living on the other side of the planet, if we were in the underground church in China or in persecuted parts of the Philippines or we are talking about Indonesia the other day and just different places, uh, especially where, where uh, Islam is present and heavy. And you can die for your faith. If you're living there, you read this and you're like, yep, that's just what we call Tuesday, right? But we read our setting into it. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. So he's talking about the beast, so there's the mark of the beast, right? This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Again, probably the most famous line. We get this a little crazy, a lot crazy. This doesn't need to be a literal number or mark. You back up to chapter 7, when the 144,000, the great multitude from all, all nations are sealed, marked, it's not visible. God seals them. It says they're written in the book of life. Do I think there's an actual hard copy book? Uh, probably not. I don't know, right? But I'm guessing it means I'm God's. You're God's. God's got my name covered. However, maybe it's Kendall. Who knows? But whatever, right? So, but there's this. It doesn't have to be this literal thing. But, that makes it more dangerous. See, when we're thinking it's a literal mark, see, if you're thinking, okay, some point they're going to tell you you got to get this 666 tattooed across your forehead or your hand. You're like, I think I can resist that. And then we get some weird answers on what the mark might be and all this, but it doesn't have to be that. It is far more dangerous and far more subtle than taking an actual mark. It's slipping into false worship of either beast. When you give in to false worship, when you give in to, to government authority, when you begin to worship these things, you've taken the mark. The idolatry is the mark. Like the seal of Christianity isn't like you getting a 777 tattooed. It's you being in Christ. The only public profession is baptism or a statement of faith and membership or whatever it might be. But it doesn't have to be this little mark. And again, it's like the gun to the head thing. It's a one-time decision you have to get right. I think that's easier than the subtle slipping into giving our alliance and allegiance to things that are worldly. For me, that's worse and harder and sustained. And when they oppress you in this sense, and, and, and it's over time, it breaks people down. And so the mark isn't about taking a mark. It's not a microchip. It's not a tattoo. It's not a 666. The 666 is just like the, the, the heads and the crowns and the blasphemous names. It's a mocking of God. That God's number is seven, and so they give him a six. It's a trinity, an only trinity. So they give him three sixes. So all the Iron Maiden fans that went out and got 666 tattoos, that's not it. 
It's much more dangerous. It's much more subtle. It's giving your lives to something false. It's giving your belief in a political system. And I know when you hear that, you think I'm talking about the other party. No, I'm talking about your party. Both parties, all parties. Green party, left, right, center, pick them. When you trust in that, that's the first beast. And when you worship the first beast, you worship, you said it, I didn't. Okay, I said it, but you're giving your allegiance not to God. We live in a country that allows us to vote, that people have fought and died for the privilege for us to vote. You get a voice. But when you slip into thinking that if I can just vote in a definition of marriage or life or treatment of aliens or this or that or whatever, when you think you can vote that in and you're going to change hearts, you're wrong and you've given your allegiance to something that is not God. The only thing that will change the internal brokenness that sin has caused is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that was accomplished for us by Christ. Nothing else will change us. And so vote, speak, do, do your thing. But pray for revival. But pray for our community. Pray for the people. I'd never pick at an abortion clinic, but I would love to pray with some women that were struggling. Right? There's a better way. And it's not a political way. When we take the political way, we take the mark. Because we give our worship to something that is antithetical to the eternal King of Kings. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the only King. There's no King Trump. There's no King Biden. There's no King next guy. There's no King conservative or Democrat or whatever. There's King Jesus. And you have allowed these things to take place for however long they take place until you finally come back and rescue us from this crazy world. So help us not to slip into a faith of convenience, a faith that allows for our lifestyle, allows for our belief, or allows us not to change or be persecuted. And forgive us, Lord, and prevent us from slipping into the idolatrous place that we as a nation can slip into and believing that our government can fix it, and they can't. They have economic implications. That's about it. They can't heal a disease. They can't change a heart. They can't put an identity or value on life. You do that. They didn't create sexuality and gender. You did. So let's lift our eyes up off of the system. Understand, we, we have a privilege in this system, but let's lift our eyes up above that and set our eyes in the kingdom so that we will not live like those who dwell on the earth. The warning of the beasts and the mark, Lord, is much more dangerous than a simple yes, no, take this visible mark or don't, take this or die. It is subtle because we get sucked into sin. So God, let us be watchmen. Let us see that sin desires to creep in and destroy us. Let us live for you no matter where we live whether this nation remains free as long as we all live or if it turns tomorrow. Let us live for you. Let not our comfort cause laziness in our faith. Let us seek to find you in our circumstances, Lord. Let us seek to be you in our communities for the others. 
Let us live like you in this world so that those who dwell here may become those who dwell in heaven. We love you, Jesus, because you came to rescue us. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Generations, as we continue in service, we have the opportunity to take communion. Taking communion is this kind of this moment where we identify ourselves as, as a part of the church. That we have that, in, that common union together. That meal is a foreshadowing of the banquet to come eternally. And so in that, just as Jesus gave to his disciples and we give to those of you who are part of the church, and you can, maybe you belong to another church, that's fine too. Right, but that you are a committed follower of Jesus, that's who this is for. Right, that Jesus gave it to his disciples, not to the masses. That he said, this is my body broken for you, you who are mine. This is my blood shed for you to forgive your sin, those who are mine. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of this church and you have given your life to following Jesus, then communion is for you. If that's not you, I'd love to talk about the gospel with you. I'd love to talk about Jesus with you. Talk about communion with you. You can just abstain from communion. We, we can chat and, and would love to tell you about Jesus. But for those who are going to take communion, as, we, as, we, as you would, if you would come forward and, and take the elements of communion, return to your seat. We're going to take communion together as a family. God has been building a family of families, the local church. And so come and take and then we will take this together. And as you're coming, I would encourage you, rather than kind of chit-chatting with the person in front of you, to consider what are the things that, that separate you from Christ today? What are the things that get in the way between you and faithful following of Jesus? And, and you have this time as you're walking forward and as you're being seated to confess those things and, and just ask God to restore those parts of you. And so come our elders and their wives are here to serve you, and then we will take communion together.